Hello and welcome to Flicking and Screaming. I am Jed Sprague, here with my co-hosts, Evan Fagundis. Hello, hello. And J-A-T, <laughs> What's going on? We're in Vegas or something. I don't know. Hey, Holy no, you shit. got a haircut, man. I got to get the air horn for the haircut. You're looking handsome as hell. What do you got going this week? You are, you've got like real deal vaxxed boy summer going on. Tell the people what's going on in your life. Hot boy summer, right? Vax boy summer. Uh, we've got uh, True Falls Film Festival here in Missouri, and it's uh, one of my favorite parts of every year. Get to volunteer and work the venues. Uh, tomorrow night, very excited. We have the first, uh, we have the premiere of Questlove's new movie, Summer of Soul. It's a documentary about Woodstock. It did premiere virtually at Sundance, but this will be the first uh, in-person showing of the film in uh, in the world, and I'm very excited about it. It's going to be a long weekend, uh, but listen, the magic of the movies, man. We're, we're welcoming the world back at True False, and I'm excited. Oh, so exciting. Evan, you got anything as exciting going on this week? No. Simple answer, no. Uh, I'm jealous. That sounds really fun. Um, I'm just kind of getting in, moved into a new apartment and, and watching movies. That's it. Just kind of same old. There is a There is a real, like, lovely quality of the move halfway moved in tv set up but there's a bunch of boxes around movie you know maybe maybe you got some microwave popcorn going you're just kind of settled in after a long day of getting your shit organized mm-hmm. yeah for sure that is a great time to watch a movie anyway we've dragged on long enough today we are covering our top five favorite movies of all time again uh this was the very very first episode of the podcast um before chip was uh was a co-host and uh so we're gonna get his top five we're gonna get me and evan's updated top fives because like we said on that original uh these lists are always subject to change um i'm super excited i know i've got a couple of uh of new things i'm really excited to hear chip's list like in full i've got an idea of what's going to be on there just from talking to him but can't wait to like actually hear the whole thing fleshed out uh but before we get to this i think i want to talk about how do we go about one evaluating what our top five favorite movies of all time are and two, like once we have that kind of general idea, you know, how do things creep, you know, in uh, and out of the list? Uh, Chip, w- w- what do you do? What's your methodology behind that? There's like, you know, a handful of movies, 20 or 30 movies that I rewatch more or less every year. Right. You know, these are my cinema classics that I'll come back to if I'm having a bad day need to take a load off or maybe i'm hanging out with my friends and i'm like hey listen have you guys seen this movie this is one of my favorites you know i want to like bring everyone in on it together so you know and sometimes it, it hits a little bit different whether that's in a positive or negative way a rewatch of a certain film might be like wow you know i, I knew i always liked this but I, I really like this or i liked this a lot you know five years ago and I'm not, I'm not so sure about, about it now for whatever reason. You know, maybe there's a, a conversation on the Internet with some friends that sparks up that, that reminds you of something or that uh, brings your attention to like, oh, I hadn't thought about this before. Let me revisit this movie. So there's there's a myriad of factors. I think, uh, honestly, I think just talking to other people about movies might be the the biggest one that just keeps the imagination going and the uh, uh, the creative drive for, uh, you know, a new favorite going. Definitely. Evan, do you have any any particular strategy when you're thinking about these movies? Yeah, you know, that last point that you made, Chip, is awesome. I think so much of it comes back to like what I like to talk about or what I find myself talking about the most often. Um, That's kind of how I went about creating my list the first time through. I was just like, what movies come to mind and which movies am I always trying to strike up a conversation about? Uh, Because there's always that that specific group. Like you said, I'd said I'd say like between 15 and 25 is a perfect number for like those movies that you kind of have to get to every year. Um, And so for this time around, I just sort of uh, sort of try to diverge a bit and think about like at the moment. What are the movies I'm thinking about the most right now um, to, to, you know, diverge a little bit from my first list and, and shake it up a bit um, and keep it as current as possible. But yeah. Yeah. I love what you guys are saying, because like when I think of like my top five favorite all time, the very first thing I do is like, all right, what are the movies that I'm constantly wanting to rewatch that I could I could throw on at any time? And I'm just like, yes, like, you know, and not just I could throw it on any time and have it be in the background, throw it on any time. And it is like I completely locked in on it um, yeah you know and, it, and it's funny um i think i was telling you guys a little bit before we started recording but 
for me, I had a couple change-ups this year. Um, I probably watched more movies this year than I have since I was was a kid, uh, which has been great product of, of uh, you know, this podcast and just, you know, making a more focused effort to do so. Uh, and I've been enjoying the hell out of it. Uh, but it's really, like, made some of those movies that I've, I've rewatched, like, grow in my estimation. And I think there's some that are going to hit my honorables that weren't on there before that I can see them kind of creeping towards my top five. And I'm excited to, like, see how it goes, you know, when I continue to rewatch them, you know, over the next uh, couple years. But, yeah, I think I'm, I'm with you guys. It's really just like, hey, what do I want to talk about? And what do I want other people to know? Like, that's a huge, huge thing. It's like, you know, branding yourself as a movie guy. That's the very first question you get. Oh, what are some of your favorite movies of all time? Or what is your favorite movie of all time? And, like, what do those say about you? And, like, it's movies that you want to be associated with, I think, is a part of it as well. So, um, you guys got anything to add before we dive into top fives? I think we could zoom through this one today. Should we share our top five from the inaugural episode and just so we can kind of compare and contrast a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so my number five uh, in the honorable or in the inaugural episode, my number five was Rounders. My number four was the Grand Budapest Hotel. Number three, Inside Lewin Davis. Number two, Lady Bird. And number one is Ocean's Eleven. Um, and I don't think we need to touch on the honorables. Um, yeah. But some of them will, will be there. Evan, what was your top five? <clears throat> my top five was five. I had Fargo. Four, I had the Princess Bride, three I had Gladiator, two I had Pulp Fiction, and one I had Goodfellas. Awesome. Those are both uh, two very different lists. Yeah, extremely. I I think like the listeners probably know those are lists that really reflect our uh, our our style and and taste of in movies uh, for sure. Chip, let's get into it, and I want to hear your fifth favorite movie of all time because you're the only guy that this is going to be like brand new for. So I'm excited. I think my list is uh, it's got a few curveballs in there as well. You're gonna hear a couple of couple of films and be like, yeah, obviously, and then you're gonna hear a couple of films and say, what the fuck. So uh, let's start with a bit of an obvious pick. My number five pick is The Social Network, directed nice. by David Fincher. This is I have to show some love to my favorite pervert, uh, <laughs> Mr. Fincher. This is it's it's less of like a outwardly gross film that we might associate with him, but underneath uh, that pretty majestic score and script it's something i think far more uh, uh lurking and sinister and evil i i really think that the social network is a villain origin story for mark zuckerberg i you know fincher's never going to do a true superhero film he's had a couple of ideas and they're just they would never fly for the big studios but zuckerberg is such like a charismatic and like deadly villain i think about uh it, this is a something i'm just coming up with but in season two of Succession, Logan Roy tells Kendall Roy, "You're not a killer. You're not. You're not enough of a killer." Mark Zuckerberg becomes a killer in this movie, mm-hmm. um, with, with with his words. And you know, Aaron Sorkin's pen is what creates those words. Um, the film honestly is maybe not even as harsh as it should have been for Zuckerberg, but it still kind of rakes him over the coals as like another Fincher pervert. Like, uh, it's. I think it might be Sorkin's best script. It's pretty close there with Moneyball. There's not. There's not really any moments in Social Network where I want Sorkin to put down the pen. I don't know if you want to fight back on that, Evan, since you have uh, coined that little phrase. <laughs> but um, I think that Eisenberg, Zuckerberg is like so energetic. The Reznor-Ross score just pushes every scene, just like n- straining my neck, white-knuckling. Like it, it almost becomes like action sequences. All those depositions and courtrooms and conversations, it's propulsive. It feels like it, they're staged like gunfights. The action is written all over characters' faces in the foreground, the background. It's just everyone is at the peak of their craft, and I, I hold it as Fincher's best and my favorite. Yeah, great pick, man. I mean, what a fucking movie. We've talked about this on the pod before, but... I, everything about what you said, it, it, the ability to take a story like this, which is essentially just like, I, I mean, it's interesting when you like dive into it, but like the way it's presented shouldn't be as interesting as it is. And you're just on the edge mm-hmm. of your seat the entire time. Um, yeah. so I absolutely love it. Uh, and I don't want to like, you know, labor on that too much. Evan, anything on this movie that you haven't said already? Uh, not really. I mean, fantastic pick. This is absolutely falls into that mold of like once or twice a year, got to toss it on, got to refresh and uh just get immersed awesome all right um i'll go to my number five uh which is a new addition to the list uh it's obviously intolerable cruelty uh absolutely (laughs) love i'm just kidding i'm just kidding 
<laughs> wow. This fucking guy right here. This fucking guy. No. Uh, number five on my list is Skyfall. Uh, everyone knows I'm a massive, massive James Bond fan. Uh, this is one of my honorables when we first did the list. Um, directed by Sam Mendes. I was starring Daniel Craig and Javier Bardem. I, like, I've said a lot about this movie. Uh, Roger Deakins cinematography, outstanding. It's my favorite Bond movie of all time. Um, and I say that as a massive, massive Bond fan. It's a hugely important franchise to me. Uh, I still think Javier Bardem's performance is, like, the best villain performance of the 21st century like <laughs> like that's how like i genuinely i feel that strongly about it like yeah. it's so good and i think he actually might have like two of my of my top five villain performances of the 21st century Pretty uh, easily yeah yeah but i just love what he does like this character is so dynamic not one dimensional like there are bond villain quote-unquote aspects to it where it's you know very flamboyant but like what he does with a lot of the, the undertones throughout his performance um he genuinely makes me afraid of him uh so Absolutely love this movie, uh, and rewatched a couple times this year actually. Uh, and every time I'm just like, God, I just love this. Not just as a Bond movie, but I just love this as a movie. And you know, I think that that says a lot. So yeah, Skyfall number five. Nice, nice. Um, hey, we 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 got so wrapped up in the in the world of Bond. I feel like it, it was bound to hop into the hop into the top five somewhere. Yeah. Um, so my number five, it's a movie I, I really, every time I watch it, it grows and grows in my estimation, and I find myself watching it all the time. My number five is Christopher Nolan's 27 uh, film, Dunkirk. And Wow. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Right? This, the first time I saw this in theaters, I, I have to say I walked out and I was like, okay, that was a really solid, like, three and a half, four star movie. You know, like, I, I'm really glad I went. And the most recent times I watch it, I'm like basically bawling at the end and blown away technically. I mean, this movie both fascinates me technically with what they're able to show on such a grand scale, um, uh, you know, as it pertains to the um, the Battle of Dunkirk, but also just emotionally. The the more I see this movie, by the time Tom Hardy is gliding over all the soldiers over the beach uh, at the end of this movie, I'm I'm really just lost in the sauce, and it's by far to me the most emotional of um, of Nolan's movies. Looks beautiful, and I uh, I can throw it on a million times. I really do love fitting all the pieces together too. Sometimes the time stuff gets a little glitchy and and um awkward but in this one it flows so well that i think it it rewards repeat viewings i absolutely love dunkirk this is uh i think on my nolan list i have it number one um i think it's probably his best uh made best crafted and i agree with you about the emotion um i think it he he strips away a lot of the dialogue from emotion and i think a lot of people have problems with nolan's dialogue how he tries to communicate uh, uh, characters and empathy and problems and solutions, but you know, if you uh, you know have one of your main characters basically doesn't talk the whole time, then that kind of yeah. <laughs> kind of helps out with it. And uh, especially especially with Hardy, man. I mean, just just the the look on his face as he's watching his plane burn on the beach, uh, that's storytelling right there. Yeah, and, and that's real acting. So I love this pick. I uh, adore this movie. Um, you know, I we'll see if it gets replaced by another Nolan film in my top spot later on because tenant continues to rise in my estimation <laughs> i watched it multiple times since it came out on hbo max because it is fucking perfect but dunkirk dunkirk rules good war movie awesome awesome uh chip what's your number four my number four is david lynch's fire walk with me Ooh, whoa okay yeah. nice yeah. so this year i found myself diving into the world of twin peaks um which is a wonderful television series. I thought about being a little bit cheeky and putting season three of Twin Peaks in my list because a lot of people will claim that it is a film, which I, you know, it's an 18 hour film. Um, I think, you know, it's a, it's a television season. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Very good television season. But Fire Walk With Me is so peculiar and its place in history is very peculiar to me. It's the, it's by definition a prequel to the first two seasons of Twin Peaks. It relies heavily on some moments from season two. It was made after Twin Peaks was canceled, after season two. And it played at film festivals, and it was booed. People walked out. People hated it. It got chopped up and edited and released. It was panned by wide audiences. No one cared. No one liked it. 
And in truth, it might be Lynch's like masterpiece. Um, it's a little bit hard to talk about without going on for hours about like what Twin Peaks is. But basically, just the story of Laura Palmer, who is uh, a girl in this town of Twin Peaks, played brilliantly by Cheryl Lee in the final days before her murder. And that murder is what sets in motion the events of the show. And we just get a glimpse into how tortured she was, the demons she was fighting in her life, quite literally, internally and externally. Um, it's just amazing that after these two seasons, we get to really know this character on a deep level, maybe deeper than any other character in the show. Like she's no longer just like a picture in a high school hallway or a cadaver or a memory. She becomes just a living, breathing, beautiful embodiment of, of David Lynch's mind and philosophies. And Cheryl Lee's performance is just a jaw-dropping uh, vehicle of grief and empathy and then ultimately catharsis. Like, we get more insight into the murder, what it meant for humanity. It, it becomes rather Christ-like in some sense, in terms of, uh, you know, being uh, Christ's death on the cross. And we just get this, eventually we get this, like, angelic restoration of her soul, and she she's able to find peace um, at the end of the movie. And it's it's just makes me weep. Also, David Bowie is in this movie. Um so that's that's really fucking cool. And Kyle MacLachlan's Agent Cooper is amazing. Lynch is Gordon Cole, but Cheryl Lee's performance is what puts this movie in my top five. It's something out of a fucking storybook. I I, I can't say enough about Twin Peaks and, and what that world is. Awesome. That I actually haven't seen this. I got to check this out. Yeah, um, definitely. I, you guys, yeah, I mean, Twin Peaks has been on like the I got a watch list for a while. So. It's something very different. I it's so hard to be like, hey, this is like completely different from every other show you'll watch, and it like it's good for the opposite reasons of every show you watch. <laughs> I gotta rip it too. I know we've talked about this uh, a little bit before, Chip, but this is definitely near the top of the list of of stuff I need to get to. Oh, all right. That was Chip's number four. With my number four, uh, this one stayed the same. Grand Budapest Hotel. Wes Anderson, my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Uh, this, I would say, like, if someone was, if if like, someone who isn't like a movie person was like, oh, what's a like, what's a movie that you really like? You know that like you you like you think people should see? And I think it's Grand Budapest Hotel. I think like how it can like straddle being emotional and like playful and silly is something that only Wes can do. Um, it's a murder mystery. It's a you know, at times it's a heist movie. It's a comedy. Um, Ray Fiennes is brilliant, um, brilliant in this in this movie. Um, I love everything about this movie. I've talked about it a lot. I don't want to take up too much time. But bury me with Boy with Apple. Just bury me with Boy with Apple. Mm -hmm. I absolutely like love this movie. It makes me laugh. It makes me cry. Uh, like only Wes can. And I really wanted to put this higher, but it just should. Like, it just goes to like show me the in my mind, the quality and how much I care about the movies that are ahead of it. Yeah. You know, I wanted to, um, the last time that I watched this movie, I was really blown away by, hold on. I got to look up. I got to make sure I got the right characters, um, before I jump into it too much, but I was absolutely blown away by the sequence where Willem Dafoe is, um, is following Jeff Goldblum and ends yes. up killing him. That so sequence that's a, that's is, unreal that's actually a ripoff of a hitchcock movie i can't remember um mm. it's like it's that makes like, sense because it's like a it's shot like... for shot um i would say homage yeah to I think like a, it's... it's like a clear reference yeah it it's just like it's so perfectly crafted it's like a movie within a movie like all of a sudden you're following him and then willem dafoe hops on on the motorcycle and I love how they're both just like kind of walking the whole time. Like, you know, just like walking through the museum, like no one, it's just such like a bizarre chase scene. It just fits so perfectly it, in the movie. It's from torn curtain. It's mm. from torn, like Liddy ripped okay. almost shot off check that by out. Like, from like torn curtain and like a very specific, like he was trying to like pay this homage. Yeah. Really, really cool. I've actually watched like, they have like both sequences side by side. Yeah. Or I can't remember. I think it might have been Variety did it where it was like it plays one for like 20 seconds and then it plays the other one for 20 seconds until they get to almost the same point and does that through the whole sequence. But yeah, amazing sequence. Honestly, yeah, Willem Dafoe in this movie, I, I, just incredible. It rips. Incredible. Yeah. yeah I, love, really I, love when, I love when he punches uh, Zero in the face. Yeah. And then he like. At the first meeting. Like a, yeah, like a prize fight. Yeah. 
Um, well, yeah, so that's pick. Evan, you're number four. Hit me. My number four stayed the exact same as well, The Princess Bride. I cannot have a top five list without The Princess Bride on it. This is absolutely one of those movies that I watch. I probably watch this movie three times a year, to be perfectly honest, um, for different reasons. You know, like, it was on my list for top five movie romances of all time. I think you can absolutely watch it with a romantic lens. Um, it's laugh out loud hilarious you can watch it as a pure comedy and there's actually like real action in this movie and the set pieces are are really cool and like just cheesy enough that it's not like they're trying to like trick you into anything Mm -hmm. but they still look you know pretty cool like especially when they're in the palace and stuff it still looks like a there's like a setting yeah but there's like a bit of like a campy quality to it 100 percent, absolutely that i i agree it reads really well with that movie in particular yeah, it, it's clearly talking about paying homage, like um, things like, you know, Monty Python and stuff like that. Like, clearly, that's in the back of Reiner's mind while he's making the movie. Um, dialogue is so snappy. I just, oh, the, this is like the, the exact, I don't even know what to, like, this is comfort food at its max yeah. when it yeah, comes it's, to like filmmaking and film feel, watching. Feel good yeah. times 11. I didn't know how to, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, this is one it's of my also a movie that... movies of all time, Evan. She absolutely loves this movie. I was, I told her she didn't listen to the original pod. Um, bad mother, bad mom. But, uh, but she, she was literally like, oh, I told her there was one of your favorite movies. She goes, oh, she goes, yeah, one of my favorites too. Yeah. So, Jeff, what were you gonna say? Love that for her. Uh, I was just gonna say it's a movie that literally anyone of any age can watch. Yes, it is. Uh, Great point. Basically, universally loved. You're, you know at holiday or something like that or you know you you're, you got a babysitter or something i don't know whatever you got going on yeah. in life you know like like charlie can watch that you don't have to feel guilty about showing it to charlie like you felt guilty about showing her ballad of buster scruggs or uh, anything else <laughs> you know that's a great point it's a great babysitter movie right a yeah. movie that the babysitter can toss on but also like not be totally bored and just have to sit on their phone the whole time yeah yeah i i actually that's a great call love it all right chip Number three, baby. We're getting a top three. Top three favorite movies of all time. Hit it. The Irishman. Oh, my God. A, what? A 2019 oh, film yeah. directed oh by a fellow named Martin Scorsese. <laughs> you guys might have heard of him. Uh, uh, yeah. The Irishman. It, the Irishman. It's Listen, this is... <laughs> yeah. Scorsese made a Netflix movie, which is an insane sentence to say, first of all. It's the story of Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. If we lived in a just society, like the world would have shut down to watch this. This would have been uh, like election night in America where every television set is watching. But, you know, we live in a we live in America. So people make jokes about how long it is on Twitter and then move on with their lives. Like how like Martin Scorsese drops a magnum opus, a, a personal testament to life and death and mortality. And people are just like, oh, cool. And then move on to like, you know, the next Netflix content dump in their lives. Like, what the I, fuck? I have. I think I've said this before, but I bought so into the, like, it's three hours long hype that it took me way too long to watch it. I was legitimately like, I was like, oh, all right, well, I got to, like, block off three hours. It's like, we were at home doing nothing. I had nothing to do. I don't know why I made so many excuses. But, yeah, continue. And, you know, if people want to take a couple of sit-downs to watch it, that's fine. I And I don't. I am not here to gatekeep how long it takes you to watch The Irishman. I'm telling you, you need to fucking watch it, though. I mean... This is De Niro, Pesci, Pacino, Scorsese at the top of their game. What else What else do you need? I mean, the way that De Niro, he plays this bridge between the mafia and between Jimmy Hoffa, and it's a bridge that, like, sways so dangerously through the film. I think it has a lot to say about mortality. Um, Scorsese films are no strangers to violent death, but The Irishman is more concerned about, like, the philosophy and the spirituality of dying. I, I really feel like uh, De Niro's character, uh, his soul is at stake in this film. And in the final act, you know, Scorsese shoots Frank as if that soul is being like whittled away. Like, I think the film is actually like pretty propulsive and pretty action packed. I don't think it's a slow film to watch. I think it moves pretty fast up until, you know, at the end, spoiler alert, De Niro's Frank kills Pacino's Jimmy Hoffa. And then it just grinds to a halt. And it feels very intentional so that the viewer like has to pay attention to how De Niro is suffering from his own actions and his his slow death. Like we never we never see him die. We see uh, Jimmy Hoffa die. 
we see uh, Pesci's uh, Buffalino die, or I think that was his name. And we never actually see De Niro's Frank die. We just see him facing uh, back on his irredeemable life. The afterlife is coming. So it, you just have this torturous and very personal hour for De Niro and Scorsese, who are two men who are also, I'm sure, grappling with uh, coming to the end of their lives. And they're not dealing with the consequences of murder. They don't have that weighing on them or, you know, <laughs> lives of active mafia uh, membership. But the final moments of this film, De Niro uh, leaving, he's asking the pastor to leave the door open. Um, and it's Christmas. And he's thinking on his life. And he's thinking on his friend who's gone. And it just feels like Scorsese himself is like opening the door for us to his soul. Um, it's just, it's gorgeous and it's heartbreaking. Um, doesn't, doesn't pull any punches. And uh, it's, it's also a Christmas movie. You guys, you guys heard that before? Heard yes. Yeah, yeah. I think you've even introduced that to the pod at one point. Have I? Really? Have I, have I said that? Quite possibly. Yeah. I don't know. How many times do you think you've seen this movie, Chip? Uh, at least five. Wow. Hell yeah. This is a great I saw pick. It, yeah. I mean, I saw it twice the month it came out. Once over the summer, Christmas for this. So yeah, I think five times. Nice. You, I've seen this movie and Chip makes me want to go downstairs and watch it right now. That was beautiful. This movie, I'm like, I had to pause for a second. So like, whoa, okay. I'm a little emotional. Like, damn. yeah. Fucks me up. <laughs> this movie can do it. Yeah, there aren't a ton of movies about like or honestly, even like on its like most like on it, you know, like not diving too into it. It's it's just a, it is a movie about getting old and like what it's like to be old and like have people around you pass away and like be on your last leg and like think about your life and like reckon with everything that you've done and like there just aren't movies that like about that. I feel like agreed. Based on what you just said right there, Chip, I'm going to humbly ask you, Jed, I want you to go to your number three. I'm going to humbly ask you to check out True Grit again and watch it through that lens. Because they're going for a very <laughs> similar thing in that movie. Uh, hold on. Oh, wow. I mean, I guess. <laughs> no, wow. I mean, I, no, I, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be. You made like a humble request, and here I am being an asshole about it. I will... I will watch True Grit again, and I will watch it through the lens of, of uh, grappling with the end of your life and mortality and all that. I, I'm assuming you're you're referring to Jeff Bridges' character, Rooster Rooster Cockburn. Kind of Jeff Bridges, but it it's it's a similar story from a different perspective, right? It, it's kind of Haley Steinfeld's character. Like the end of that movie to me is so similar. It's just somebody who's kind of left with knowing about this stuff, and you know she never reconnected with them for for years and years so it, it's not the same exact thing i'm not saying it's a one-to-one -one parallel it's just like asking similar questions about meaning and worth okay i i i trust you enough okay. to uh dive back in thank you evan all right um my number three another new addition to the list uh my number three is lord of the rings the two towers so, oh, baby. I think that the Lord of the Rings is probably the single most important, like, entity in movie making. Like, to me, loving movies. Like, these are the first mm. movies that I think I, like, really remember absolutely loving, absolutely connecting with. I went to, that was my first midnight premiere was Return of the King when I was, like, eight. Like, shout out to my parents for, like, actually like, taking me to that. Um, and then just what it's become after, like I, you know, grew up wanting to read all the books and reading all the books and, and being like kind of a, I've, I watch like YouTube videos about like the, like lore of the universe, like Tolkien is so important to me. And so I picked the two towers, um, as my stand in for the overall trilogy, but mm -hmm. I also, I think it's, it's my favorite, um, of of the three uh, films in, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I rewatched these this summer. Uh, then I went back and I rewatched them again in the wintertime. Uh, and I just rewatched them a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I'll never, ever get tired of these movies, no matter how long they are. And I watch the extended editions every time. 
So it's like every time mm-hmm. I rewatch it, it's 12 hours of me just being locked in to pure cinematic excellence. I mean, from the the score to, you know, the, the cinematography and everything that they were able to create at that moment in time is so incredible. Um, it's the perfect amount of special effects and, like, practical effects. Like, what they mm-hmm. what it took to make these movies. Like, I don't know. I It's weird. I get emotional because it, not about, like, talking about the characters or anything, but just in literally how many hours of my life I've spent watching, you know, this movie and, and this trilogy. Uh, and I was going back through my top five. I'm like, this is on it. Like, this has to be on it. Like, I could, like, honestly justify putting, like, if I could put the whole trilogy, I could justify putting it number one. Like, it is legitimately yeah. that important to me. Um and I really think, too, they're just they're just great, like movies, just as a standalone. Like regardless of like whether or not you liked the you know you read the books or you or you liked the universe, I think the story that you know that Peter Jackson conveys, the Tolkien story he conveys, the decisions he makes on what to leave in, what to leave out, is like an absolute masterstroke in adaptation um, and getting the story to be like what it needs to be on screen. And what's at the heart of the story is like a journey of you know, the underdog, you know, people who are unexpected, um, you know, doing massive things to to save the world and the burden that it, it uh, lays on them. And yeah, so I had to put it on here. Absolutely, absolutely love this movie. We did it in a versus. I think maybe, you know, we could dedicate like one whole pod to the trilogy at some point, if you guys are willing. Maybe if the A's have the best record at the All-Star break, that's what we'll do. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just... I can never say enough words about like what these mean to me. I've had I have like actual model swords of um, Narsil, Flame of the West, which is the name of Aragorn's sword, which I know because I fucking have seen these movies and read these books so many goddamn times. Uh, had it in my childhood bedroom, and yeah, shout out to Vigo Mortensen. I wanted I wanted him to like be a part of my family when I was a kid. I watched Hidalgo <laughs> in the theater because of his per- <laughs> performance. Jed, this you're is all my very personal Vigo <laughs> I really appreciate. I I think I appreciate that. Except like, can we omit Green Book from that? Yeah. Then I'm like <laughs> Jed Sprague in Green Book. Yes. Then I'm. De- yes, we can. Yeah, yeah. Let's omit Green Book, and then I'll, I'm down to be a personal Vigo Mortensen. All right. Hell yeah. On brand. On brand. Um. So I will stay on brand as well. My number three, uh, and this absolutely just hops into the, you know fits into the category of movies I talk about just all the time, and I've probably seen the most over the last couple of years, is The Lobster. Uh, Yorgos Lanthimos' 2015 dark comedy. Um, This movie, if I could describe it with one word, it would just be fascinating. This movie fascinates me. I love the performances so much. Um, It has one of my favorite narrations uh, of really any modern movie. I feel like Rachel Weisz narrating this movie is like my friend at this point, or at least an acquaintance or something like that. And if we're (laughs) going to say David Fincher's movies are for the perverts, I feel like Yorgos's movies are for the people who the perverts think are a little bit weird. This dude is just (laughs) so bizarre. Um I love the I love the stilted dialogue. I think the story actually does uh, ask some really interesting questions around, um, you know, societal expectation. It's not anything that's like brand new uh, to filmmaking or or to philosophy, but it's really trying to get at the heart of like why do people do what they do? Um, how easy would it be to get people to kind of follow along? I'm not trying to be an anti-masker or anything like that here, but <laughs> at, at what stage do people really start turning against? Um, a governmental entity or some type of power structure when it comes to um, them literally being turned into animals uh, if they can't find a partner in in 40, 45 days. Um, And this movie is also just absolutely laugh out loud hilarious. And anyone who watches it and doesn't think so, I'm so sorry. But I find this movie just so, so funny. I laugh so much when I see it. Um, And yeah, I just... I know I've talked about it before. Uh, I, I won't go on too much longer, but I love this movie. It's also beautiful. It looks great. So I love you putting this at three and then being like, this is a movie for the people that the perverts think are weird. Just like. Yep. Completely being. Hey, I, mask I, off. I love it. I love that for you. Um, yep. Yeah, this is on brand, but like in a weird way. Like, I, I love it, though. I mean, like, I love that you've leaned into this, like being a part of your identity. Um 
Yeah. I don't get I don't get this movie. Like I like it, <laughs> but like I I I have not yet understood in my I think two watches why you love it so much. But I'm gonna keep watching it and try to find out. All I'm saying is, next time you watch it, do not take your eyes off the screen when Olivia Coleman is on screen. Olivia Coleman in this movie is unreal. The duet that she sings with like her her husband in the movie is unbelievable. Oh, amazing! All right, Chip. I want to apologize for my little "Oh my God" when you said the lobster. I feel like that's too you know between this and the True Grit thing today. I'm just like not being a good friend, despite the fact that this is like a celebration of movies together. So please do. I, I it's like a "Oh my God, yes, this is Evan." I, and I and I love Evan as opposed to a, oh my God what is this guy doing <laughs> so please uh you know <laughs> thank you I can't for, wait uh, to hear what your next one is Chip oh you're gonna love my next one actually uh, this is another celebrated American filmmaker that I think surprisingly for three white guys we haven't really touched much on this podcast uh, it's a film by a guy named Quentin Tarantino yeah the white guy and. Director. Yeah, is the guy that made Evan like Dunkirk? Is that why you like Dunkirk because of Tarantino? It's not why, but it's it's the reason I started re. I even rewatched it for the for like I hadn't seen it since theaters until I heard that podcast with him talking about it. Sure, there you go. The name of the film is Jackie Brown. Yeah, nice, uh, nice. I really, I really regret that I came to terms with this film so late in my life um you know i watched it in high school because i watched every tarantino movie in high school and you know hope to see people's heads get blown up and you know nazis get uh, shot to pieces and uh came away kind of bored the reality is that jackie brown i think kind of along with once upon a time in hollywood is his most adult movie and most uh, really mature take on love and romance and honestly a pretty innocent romance and it's all because of pam greer and robert forster uh, truly like two of the great movie stars we could imagine forster as the bail bondsman max cherry pam greer as jackie brown you've got this super delightfully messy and weird double triple crossing heist robbery story sam jackson of course is incredible you've got a god level de niro pothead performance uh I, Every time I think it is my favorite part of the movie, but Michael Keaton is in this movie and he's like on speed and everyone else in the movie is like on weed. So it's just a hilarious and really memorable character choice. Um, but it's it's Pam Greer. It's the way that Tarantino shoots Pam Greer as Jack Brown, as Jackie Brown that keeps me coming back. The, uh, the cinematographer for this film is Guillermo Navarro, who uh, is not a very good cinematographer. I don't think he's he's photographed uh, Spy Kids. In the Robert Downey Jr. Doolittle movie, so I, well, I'm going to listen, give Tarantino. Spy Kids, mas- Spy Kids was a masterpiece. Spy Kids is, is great, but like, <laughs> I, it's a really good movie. I really wanted to. The, uh, I, you know what you I know, love like, the, is that I've gotten to the point where I can make comments facetiously, and both of you have to be like, I have to respond respectfully because he's cl- this clearly he's serious. <laughs> Spy Kids was good, and like this is not a nah, knock against two it. Was but... good. Spy Kids one is trash. Anyway, continue. The, the way that they like heated up the food in their little ship. Do you remember that? I thought that was really cool. And yeah, like the little kids, microwave. Like oh, that's what I thought like was going to happen. Like when I when we got to this age, I thought that's how we were going to like make food. I thought a lot about I thought things would be very different for me by my age. But anyway, I think Tarantino deserves more credit for, for the way that this movie is shot. Although Navarro did shoot uh, Pan's Labyrinth, which is quite pretty. But um just the way that Tarantino like has this reverence for Pam Greer, her walk, uh, her, her gaze, her shoulders, like she is framed as a as a goddess the entire film. Um, I don't think that he like think about the the scene where she's in the bar with Max Cherry and there's just that red lighting. It's just balloons that sexual tension. You got that sexy ass saxophone in the background. It never feels like Tarantino is objectifying her. Um, he's giving her like a sexual presence and power. But like we've seen Tarantino do objectification, uh, <laughs> that's not what he's doing with with Pam Greer. Um, I think he might actually be in love with her or like a little bit obsessed. It seems like glorification <laughs> like to me. Yes, glorification. Yeah. Yes, I mean I'm certain he grew up on her films mm-hmm. uh, from when from when she was a, a younger actress, and he's just giving her that respect and glamour the entire time. Uh, her romance with Max is like really sweet. It's very sexy without taking any clothes off you know it just is uh the the conversations are so graceful and yearning and just weaving back and forth 
and they're just longing for a better life. You know, there's a little bit with both of them. They're both getting a little bit older, not to the stage of the Irishman, but they're both like looking back at life uh, to a, to a lesser extent. And Jackie Brown gets that better life at the end, listening to to Bobby Womack as she's driving off, you know, across 110th Street. Yeah, this is. I mean, this is a fantastic choice. It, this, oh, I'm really excited to do a Quentin episode at some point. Um, it's coming. I think there's a reason that this feels like maybe the most personal Quentin movie. Like it really does seem like he had genuine love for like these characters while he was crafting them. They're very pure. Like they're um, obviously you've got some some villains, some bad guys mixed up and stuff, but they're like some of the most quote unquote morally upright almost yeah, people. Like, right. Like they're they like they're very redeemable. They they right. like a lot of Tarantino movies, even if they are like the protagonists, you know, like Aldo Rain does some pretty irredeemable things. You're right. Even as the uh, the Nazi killer. And you know, I endorse everything he does, but you know, <laughs> let's it's it's very different when it's there are people who actually Max aren't Perry, like uh, yeah, like cutting off people's scalps in this movie. Exactly. Right or wrong reason Max for doing so. Taking yeah. a bag of money. Right, exactly. Yeah, I this is a great movie. I think I don't this is a Quentin I haven't visited enough. Um I feel like I saw this pretty early on in like my Quentin journey. But being at number two on your list, I I mean, you know, now it now I gotta get it on mine. I gotta watch it enough where I just end up loving it no matter how I feel about it. <laughs> no, this is this is a great pick. This is a really this is a really really fun movie. I agree with what you said about it being the most personal Tarantino. I'd always written it off as like this is before he like f- truly like found his lane, you know, of like what he was gonna do. Sure. But I think viewing it through the maybe it's just his more personal movie. Evan gave me a suspicious look, like that was a bad take. Like Jackie Brown was before he knew what he was gonna do. But. <laughs> This man is dropping masterpiece after masterpiece pre Jackie Brown, but no, no, oh no, no, I'm not saying. Okay, never mind. I that's I got you. I got you. That's a debate for the Quentin. It's it's kind of his transition into like there have been phases of Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, yeah, okay. That maybe that's it. It was his transition out of the original phase for sure. Yeah, there, there you go. That was a better, more eloquent way of putting what I, what I was saying. But okay. Moving on. Anything else about Jackie Brown before I make another comment and get roasted by Evan? I didn't even roast. I was just, I got to no, stick, stick up for my list, my upcoming list. Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, number two, no changes for me. It's Ladybird, guys. It's it's it Ladybird. I mean, I think this is this. I said this about Grand Budapest Hotel too, but I mean it about about this movie as well. This is the movie like I tell everyone to just go watch. Um, Evan and I have talked about how important it is to both of us, uh, like strictly just from like it mirroring so much of like our own experience growing up. Um, but yeah, wonderful story, uh, about mother daughter relationship, wonderful story about, you know, coming of age and, and, uh, you know, wanting to fit in and, and also be unique. Uh, I just connect with it on so many levels. Uh, yeah, Ladybird, incredible. Uh, Evan, what's your number two? My number two is a new one, uh, not not new to the pod. I talk about it all the time, but my number two is The Godfather, and mm. I ended up watching these movies a lot over the last year or so, um, just as like a personal project to kind of see how I felt about them. And Godfather One is like one one of the most legendary, you know, dramatic tellings um, and, and touches on so many subjects, whether it be family, loss, grief, um, capital and capitalism, um, America, like what it means to live in America and be an American, um, mm-hmm. you know, relations of different um, ethnic groups in America. It, it touches on so much. It's also just so much fun. Like the first 40 minutes of the first Godfather movie starting with, you know, that opening that we talked about uh, for Miller's Crossing, the the direct homage um, in Don Corleone's office through the entire um, wedding is just, I mean, I I don't know if I've seen 40 minutes that are more fun in a movie. It's just exploding Mm. left and right. The performances are unreal. I, I, I mean, Pacino in this movie is unbelievable, and Robert Duvall is like maybe my favorite screen performance of all time. Is Robert Duvall in the in Godfather One and Godfather Two? Um, wow. 
and yeah, it's it's just it's so much fun, and I I just can't get enough of it. It's like one of those that took me too long to get to because it's like you always hear about it, but I always just thought it was more Citizen Kaney mm. than it was. Mm-hmm. This is like sacrilege, but like more Citizen Kane than it is like I don't know Inception or something, right? Like you think of Inception, it's like heart pounding action the whole time. You think of Citizen Kane, you think of like a a character study, almost like a somewhat slog. I'm not comparing the two movies. I'm just saying the feeling that you get when you watch them. Uh, But you watch The Godfather and it moves like it makes your heart feel the same way that it would like watching Heat maybe is a better example. Like a movie like that where you're just like engrossed the entire time and you don't feel like you're like taking a test or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I I completely understand, understand what you're saying. Yeah, no, this is a great pick. Are, so you're Godfather over Godfather 2, then? As far as favorite goes, yes. But do you Like, think- technically, the technical aspects of both movies is maybe a toss-up for me. But as far as, like, the one that I'm like, I'm going to sit down and watch one of these movies, it's one every time. Got it. I'm in the same boat. I also uh, prefer one over two. Uh, it, exclusively for the wedding scene, I don't think there's a scene in yeah. Godfather 2 that's as uh, beautiful and really touching while also having that uh, undercurrent of power and and everything else that's going on. The menace. This movie is just, like, menacing. Like, almost everyone who comes on the screen, you're just, like, kind of terrified. Yeah. Godfather's insanely good. Uh, To state the obvious. Chip, number one, my friend. We've made it. It's time. Uh, It's No Country for Old Men. This has been my favorite movie for a very long time. And uh, it might be fortuitous that I couldn't draft it last week in our Cohen movie draft uh, so that I wouldn't like blow my load early. Um, (laughs) And I, you know, I tried to be interesting with my top five and, you know, talk about some things that have been impacting me more recently. But um, there's a few things. Sometimes it's good to like keep a constant in your life. And it's hard for me to imagine a world where this won't be in the number one spot. Um, this is a movie I can't find a single flaw with. It is based on the Cormac McCarthy novel, which is on my bookshelf right now. It is faithful to the tone of the novel, while also forging something I think a little bit more dreamy, quite literally, uh, with the with how the film emphasizes that ending with Tommy Lee Jones's dreams. But in regards to the tone, like it's a movie that I don't even know if I necessarily agree with. Like McCarthy and the Coens have this vision that comes together for a very pessimistic view of the world to the point where I'd say it's not just a dying world. It's a dead world. It's very dreary and apocalyptic. It it feels like Roger Deakins who shot the film is shooting a version of hell. And I think that uh, the Coens and Deakins have shot hell before. I think they did it in Barton Fink with uh, John Goodman's character in that scene in the hallway with the fire. I think it's a very traditional and literal version of hell, but this is like a dusty shadowy, hot wind across a dirt caked onto some boot prints version of hell. Um, And the film's thesis is just very hopeless. It's very dour, which isn't really a philosophy of life I hold to at all, but that random and disparate evil that ravages this dead world is just so attractive to me in fiction. And I don't know why, I don't know what that means about me, but I want to watch that. And I want to, to just see that evil on screen and just swim around in it. There's very few like Coen brothers, uh, trademarks in this movie. There's like hardly any music. There's a, a touch of Cohen humor and silly uh, random characters, but the humor is like it's really it's really held back. It's it's like guarded. It's it's a lot of nervous laughter, like the way that the uh, the deputy will make little jokes and then Tommy Lee will say something like really wise but also really depressing. And it's like oh, this movie makes me like makes me want to die as well. Like uh, the ending in particular is just ra- it's rather strange. Uh, for Tommy Lee Jones to relay these kind of metaphorical, kind of eerie stories of his dreams. He's kind of looking in the camera, kind of not. And, you know, in the dreams, there's this hope of light still out there uh, being carried by by someone. And the light is still there. And then the final line, Tommy Lee Jones says, and then I woke up. And just the implication that hope is gone, hope is extinguished, uh, welcome to hell. And... uh, this is my favorite. <laughs> Welcome to hell. This is my favorite movie. What the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I'm glad that I was able to like kind of talk about it because this is my favorite movie for a long time, and it, like to finally like be able to put words to it, like forcing me to sit down and 
try to like actually like I kind of wrote most of that out because I wanted to like give it justice. Um, so that's that's my spiel. Beautiful. I, I I'm not gonna sully that with trying to tell talk about how great this movie is. That is a great pick, and uh, I'm glad we get to chat about this a little bit more too after after last week's Cohen episode. Um, but this to me is like the most literal interpretation of like the random evil or the random violence that the Coens seem to really believe is out there. And sometimes it comes in the form of a serial adulterer. Sometimes it comes in the form <laughs> of, um, shoot, I don't even know. I mean, like in the case of Burn After Reading, like kind of the evil is, is passed around between like the CIA people who work at the gym. Like, you know, it's like kind of anyone can carry this random, um, uh, or chaos, maybe more like. I wanted to ask you. Obviously, Shigeru is, is number one. Who do you think is the second most like imposing or scary character in the Cohen verse? I have an idea for who I think is second, but I'm curious to think what or hear what you think. I mean, Catherine I might Jones have to go with. Cruelty. I mean, oh my god, <laughs> she is pretty savage in that movie. This is tough. I need to like look at a list because I have an I, answer, I know but I don't know if it's right. Do, do you want me to? Do you want me to say mine first? Say yours first. No, let's we'll see uh, if I agree. I think the Dane from Miller's Crossing. Yeah, the Dane is brutal. Like when he's when he's choking Gabriel Byrne out before he gets popped in the face by the by the like coal shovel or whatever. That he is so scary in that movie. That's a really good answer, but I think you're wrong. Okay. Let me hold on. I think the answer is Leonard Smalls raising Arizona. Mm. Wow. Interesting. Okay. I think that and that wasn't even the, the first one that came to mind. The first one that came to mind was actually um John Goodman's character in Barton Fink. Yeah. At the end when he's um, you know. Uh, they realize that he is that that serial murderer. Um, but yeah, I think it's got to be right. It's got to be Leonard Smalls in Raising Arizona. I mean, that guy's like, like a like a like a myth. He is like a myth. He is like a myth. That's that's a good choice. I there's something about the Dane that seemed like so unpredictable. Sure. And Leonard Smalls is like a myth, but it seemed like it was like clear what he was going for. But I agree. As far as like just uh, being physically and and emotionally imposing. It's hard to beat Leonard Smalls. Dude literally doesn't utter a word. He's just out there for 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 death. Yeah. Love the Coens. Also, I just a point of comparison. Could you consider Jackie Brown the most Cohen like that Tarantino has ever been? Hmm. Yeah, I guess. I see a world where the Coens make this kind of movie, right? Yeah. That's true. Don't you for something about like Django gives me like Cohen-y vibes too, but like Christoph Waltz at least in Django gives me real like Cohen's yeah, yeah. do. Uh, but I hear what you mean. I Jackie Brown could easily be it because usually they don't go as Tarantino always wants to go that step further, right? And like Jackie Brown yeah. is kind of the one where he doesn't, um, and that does seem a little bit more Cohen's brother e. All right. All right. <laughs> oh, that was good. There, that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That, no, no, good one. Uh, all right. We can zoom through my number one as well. It's Ocean's Eleven, baby. There What's the is. fucking yeah. best thing about movies? It's cool people doing cool shit on screen. And that's yep. what this movie is. Um, it's George Clooney's second best performance behind Intolerable Cruelty. Um, it's it's, you're a, you're a it's maniac. Just... Brad Pitt just being Brad Pitt and eating a lot and being suave. And... Um, and it's one of the worst British accents of all time. I mean, th it's just a, <laughs> this is, it's just the, the best, like talk about like a feel good movie for so many different reasons than princess bride, Evan, but like, this is a feel good movie to me. Um, just a good little heist movie, good little revenge story. It's not too long. Um, yeah, I know, I know exactly what happens in every scene and it still, every time I watch it blows me away. Shout out to Soderbergh, man, real legend. They should have told him about the ending of the Oscars. Uh, yeah, fuck. Yeah, that was brutal. Uh, <laughs> justice for Steven Soderbergh. Evan, you're number yeah. one. Change? So, 
My number one, slight change, but it was on my list last time. Um, I watched it again last night. I don't know how I didn't have this number one last time. It's Pulp Fiction. I mean, this movie is flat out unbelievable. And, you know, the only thing I want to – I've talked about this movie a bunch. I don't need to talk about it a ton. The only thing I wanted to mention, it gets talked about all the time. People are like, wow, Pulp Fiction should have won Best Picture. It's absolutely hilarious to me and amazing that Quentin Tarantino basically wanted to make a movie about um, sex, violence, and drugs and kind of tied it into this, like, epic about modern American society and people ate it up as, like, a real, like, prestige movie. When in reality, the parts that he's most (laughs) excited about are the ones where people are, like, ODing or shooting each other in the face and stuff like that. Um, It's just there's something that's so, like, pure about this movie for somebody like Quentin who is constantly questioned as far as like motives and things like that go this movie seems like he's not trying to hide it at all like he's like these are my interests and I'm gonna put it on the screen in this way and people kind of loved it which I think maybe is uh, (laughs) maybe has fed into some of the difficulties he's had as he as he's gone forward because people just absolutely ate up what he wanted to put on the screen for basically his entire uh life growing up um but it's just it's amazing I (laughs) I love this movie so much it's a perfect movie I mean it really is it's kind of I appreciate you like finding something new to say about it because like at some point when I talk about Pulp Fiction it's like I'm just repeating things, but yeah. you kind of brought up a little fresh spin on it. So, had a boy. Thank you, thank you. I know I got to find something. I was I was just thinking last night. I was like, what can I say that I haven't said already? I'm like, yeah, Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman, best performance ever. A new like, character. Yep, we've yeah, said it. That's, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great movie. It's no intolerable cruelty, but it's really good, man. I mean, fair. <laughs> tough but fair. <laughs> Uh, Chip, all right, quickly run down through your list and hit me with like a few quick honorable mentions. Things that either you maybe have been on the list in the past, things that, uh, you know, maybe you think are creeping up towards the list. Hit me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going five to one, uh, Social Network, uh, Fire Walk With Me, The Irishman, Jackie Brown, No Country for Old Men. Next five, I've got Rear Window, I've got Arrival, I've got Michael Clayton. That movie's climbing fast, let me tell you. Uh, there will be blood and do the right thing. Awesome. Uh, so I had Skyfall, Grand Budapest Hotel, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Lady Bird, and Ocean's Eleven. Um, you know, honorables obviously Inside Lewin Davis uh, that was on the list last time uh, didn't quite make it, uh, as well as Rounders, both movies that I love a lot, uh, but got replaced by movies that at the moment I love a little bit more. Um, Wolf of Wall Street is on there for me. Mm. Uh, easy. I also had Rear Window. Uh, just absolute. Like that's a movie that made me like old movies. Like yeah. Rear Window made me appreciate like uh, movies in a completely different way. Um, I've got Pirates of the Caribbean: Curse of the Black Pearl because mm-hmm. I my love for that that franchise is reinvigorated and like hell yeah. Um, uh, I have The Town, which was on my honorables last time, and then Burn After Reading. Man, I had not seen that movie in so long before we did the Cohen stuff, and I've rewatched it. Uh, I watched it twice before uh, we did the draft, and then after we did the draft, uh, I was I had to watch it again. Uh, amazing, dude! Th- this movie is so good, and I feel like it's climbing towards my top five really fast. Do you guys real like? Obviously, you guys do, but isn't it hilarious that Burn After Reading is the movie that the Coens made after winning Best Picture and Best Director for No Country for Old Men? I that I cracks me up. I can't believe you forgot about that. That is incredible because they were <laughs> they weren't like. They weren't like, we got our, okay, we got our Oscar. Now we're officially prestige filmmakers. Let's make like a big think piece. Yeah. They're like, let's go make like, like an absolutely hysterical comedy. I think it's wild. Do you think people maybe because of that, like went into it with the wrong intentions? Because I know a lot of this hate like is like by people that don't get like the, they don't buy into the comedy aspect of it. Like at least the burn after reading hate that I've seen. Is there hate? I haven't seen. I didn't. I didn't know people discussed it that much. I I know. Like I think when it came out, it got kind of a bad rap. I don't. Yeah. I don't know why. Again, I think maybe it is because it's so different than No Country. Yeah. But like, just just to go on a bit of a tangent, 07 is No Country for Old Men. 2008 comes out. Burn after reading. 2009, A Serious Man. 2010, True Grit. Yeah. What the fuck? It's and insane. like, I know that my mileage hasn't been great on True Grit. 
but it's still pretty well revered and honestly just an amazingly well made movie. What yeah. he can do with it and what that script is is incredible. That's four movies in four years that would be the best movie in like most every other director's filmography. Jesus right. Christ. And they're all so different too. Yeah. yeah. Like they're really backing the, backing each other up with like period pieces in totally different periods, totally different settings. It's kind of crazy. It's almost like it, it it almost strikes me, and this is I don't like this is not true. To, to them to be that prolific, it's almost like one of them's directing, and then another one of them is directing the other, you know, like movie, and they're just like putting their names on both of them. Like even if like that, so impressive. Yeah, I mean, I mean it is. They're all over the place. Uh, Evan, uh, hit us, hit us with your uh, your top five, and then your honorables. All right, so I had, um, starting at five, I had Dunkirk, The Princess Bride, The Lobster, The Godfather, and Pulp Fiction. And honorables, a couple that that are just off for the time being, uh, Goodfellas, Fargo, of course, um, still right up there. Uh, Phantom Thread is is climbing Mm. up very quickly um, in my personal rankings. And then one older one that I just, I mean... um, I feel like it's kind of a staple on a lot of people's, but Jaws. I, I've been watching Jaws a little mm-hmm. bit lately, and, and that movie yeah. just really fits that mold of incredible entertainment while also being, you know, like prestige, um, dramatical telling. Real good movie. People, uh, people should talk about that movie more. Give their, give their opinions on it. I'm sure, I'm sure people's <laughs> opinions of that movie are well-received, no matter what they are. <laughs> of course. Yeah, uh, we should we should do a Jaws Redemption episode. But I stand by what I said. I, it's not as much as I hate the movie as much as I hate the genre that it spawned. Mm. I get that. I understand. I want you to live your truth, Jed. I know. Are you, are you talking about the genre of shark movies or like shark the greatest movie. American? Oh, okay. Nope. Shark I think you were talking about like, <laughs> it spawned like the greatest American like blockbuster movie making <laughs> ever but yeah i mean it's like shark movies sport, that's just not into the shark movies the score is bullshit man it's only two notes but like anyone could have written that the... yeah true somebody else should <laughs> that was a joke people like one of the greatest scores of all time um anyway yeah we, we can get into jaws uh, again another time i haven't watched it since i made that that take and or since i had that take that like literally people want to light me on fire I almost quit podcasting after, you know, one episode because of it. But uh, <laughs> it takes the first time. Yeah, but anything else to add, guys? I mean, this you know this was great. I'm happy that we finally got chips uh, chips list. There was a couple surprises on there, um, which I was happy about. Yeah, I got to keep you guys on your toes. I mean, I think several of mine are actually available on HBO Max right now, which mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you want to uh, pledge your loyalty to a streaming service, as we are all supposed to do in the year 2021. HBO Max has got some real good content right now across a lot of years, a lot of genres, a lot of different movies you can uh, you can find. So mm-hmm. yeah. they've Max. got they've got great content um, for sure. Yeah. Their movie curation is I feel like it's always HBO's have always been really good, but um, it particularly yeah. feels like they upped their game. Uh, yeah. Still hate the whole going to streaming services instead of theaters shit, but you know, yeah, do it doing your deals with the devil. It happens. Definitely. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Please follow us on Twitter and join the conversation. Tell us if your top five favorite movies uh, have changed or what they are if you're a new listener. Welcome. We haven't welcomed you uh, in in a long time. Um, Shout out to the people that have been with us from the beginning as well. We love you guys. Uh, So, yeah, follow us on Twitter, at Flick and Scream, on Instagram, at Flicking and Screaming. Next week, really exciting week, actually. Uh, We're going to be talking about a lovely A24 film from last year, uh, First Cow. And we're going to catch up with one of the stars of that movie, Orion Lee. We were supposed to have him on uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, but uh, luckily we were able to uh, uh, to reschedule. So we're super excited to have that chat and uh, talk about just a beautiful, beautiful movie that came out last year that people probably didn't talk about enough. Yeah, can't wait. This is, uh, I mean, First Cow made my top five list. I believe it made uh, Evan's top five list for the year 2020 as well. And listen, this is just... It's so special. Like, this is just one of those movies that I'm going to be talking about forever. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the best movie the last few years shot in 4-3. And uh, even Zack Snyder himself said that. So, which is great. It, the last person I expected to be defending first cow was Zack Snyder, who <laughs> shot 
the Snyder cut in four three as well. So uh, how about that? Yeah, that's a different conversation. Um, but all right, guys, thank you so much. Till next week. Has been flicking and screaming. Jed Sprague, Evan Vagundis, JT Chipman. Thank you. See ya. See you guys.